0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 9, the book of Acts, chapter 3, continued. Before we move on in Acts chapter 3, with our discussion of the, the, the cripple who is who was healed by the power of Yeshua through Peter and John let's recall what we learned in our last lesson now we talked about the relationship between sin and sickness and found that the Bible frames the issue of one of wholeness or perhaps more accurately the lack of wholeness as the dynamic that undergirds the connection between sin sin and sickness And when we compare and contrast Bible passages on this subject in John 5 and John 9, we find that in the first instance, these words of Yeshua, who are speaking to a lame person, he's just healed. See, you are well. Now stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. But in the second instance, we have Yeshua healing a blind man and when he's asked by his disciples whose sins caused this man to be blind he answered his blindness is due neither to his sin nor that of his parents it happened so that God's power might be seen at work in him so in the sense that sinning meaning wrong behavior breaking the Torah law <clears throat> directly leads to a person becoming ill scripture shows that's not necessarily the case it can be so but by no means can we establish a concrete one-to-one direct link between committing sins and sickness. Steal a car, get the measles. Commit adultery, get cancer. Rather, it's more about the reality that as a result of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, all humans are born in sin. That's it. We're, that is, we're all born with sin woven into our DNA. And the result of this is that we get sick and we die. So, sickness is the tangible physical manifestation and counterpart of the invisible spiritual condition of sin. But to God, the issue of sin is the lack of wholeness in his creatures. All of his creatures were originally created whole. But because we now have sin woven into us, then we're no longer whole. We're blemished. Sickness and death also represent a lack of physical wholeness. Thus, since nothing that isn't whole can be allowed into the presence of God, and since the fall of man, nothing remains whole, what can be done about this? Answer, God must restore that which is not whole to full wholeness. But how? Through redemption. Through redemption. By the blood and the living water of the Lamb, Son of God, those who profess the Lamb, Yeshua of Nazareth, as the Redeemer, we are imputed with a kind of wholeness. It is certainly not that our bodies are made physically new and whole, because believers suffer disease and die just like the wicked do. Rather, it's our spirits that are made whole and acceptable to God, such that when we finally shed these unwhole bodies, our spirits can enter into His presence, as Peter so eloquently said it in 2 Corinthians 5.8 or rather as Paul said it we are confident then and would much prefer to leave our home in the body come to our home with the Lord so a key principle that we learned and frankly it sometimes flies in the face of what we might have been taught in the past is that redemption is not an end or a goal in itself rather redemption is the means to attain the goal The goal is wholeness before God. Now another thing we discussed was that in Christ's day physicians were viewed with suspicion by the Jews. Luke, the writer of Acts, was a physician. And generally speaking, the attitude was that God was the healer. So a sick person was to seek God and no one else for their healing. Thus, medical healing by doctors and prayer for divine healing were regularly seen as incompatible. Even so, because of the dominance of Greek culture and the practice of medicine being so prevalent in the Roman Empire, Jews sort of readapted their thinking and they began to accept the notion that medical healing and doctors were themselves a gift from God and they could be used in conjunction with prayer for healing provided the medical doctor didn't practice magic. Nevertheless, while out in the Jewish diaspora this concept of of physicians and medicines as not being an enemy to faith in God these were easily accepted in Judea and Jerusalem it was less so. So at the temple When Peter and John seemed to have healed this cripple of our story in Acts 3, they were instantly seen by the locals as faith healers. And so their first reaction was to make it clear that they didn't heal this man. God healed him. And that it was done in the name and in the power and in the authority of Yeshua of Nazareth. So, let's reread part of Acts chapter 3 we're going to start at verse 12 so if you have a complete Jewish Bible it's on page 1363 starting at verse 12 seeing this Kepha addressed the people men of Israel why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as if we had made this man walk through some power or some godliness of our own? The God of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Yeshua. This same Yeshua you handed over and disowned before Pilate even after he had decided to release him. You denied the Holy and the Innocent One and instead asked for the reprieve of a murderer. You killed the author of life. But God has raised him from the dead. Of this we are witnesses. And it is through putting trust in his name that his name has given strength to this man whom you see and you know. Yes, it is the trust that comes through Yeshua which has given him this perfect healing in the presence of you all. Now brothers, I know you didn't understand the significance of what you were doing and neither did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled What he had announced in advance when he spoke through all the prophets, namely that his Messiah was to die. Therefore repent, turn to God, so that your sins may be erased, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord's presence. He may send the Messiah appointed in advance for you, that is Yeshua. He has to remain in heaven until the time comes for restoring everything. As God said long ago when he spoke through the holy prophets, for Moses himself said, I will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You are to listen to everything he tells you. Everyone who fails to listen to that prophet will be removed from the people and destroyed. Indeed, all the prophets announced these days, starting with Shmuel, Samuel, continuing through the, all who followed, you are the sons of the prophets you are included in the covenant which God made with our fathers when he said to Abraham, By your seed will all the families of the earth be blessed. So it is to you first that God has sent his servant whom he has raised up so that he might bless you by turning each one of you from your evil ways. The first thing to notice here is that in verse 12 it's reaffirmed to whom Peter is addressing his speech, to the men of Israel. Peter is not talking to Gentiles, as Gentiles are at this point not relevant to anything Kepha, Peter, was thinking about, at least not yet. And because this crippled man is so well known, it's clear that something miraculous had happened to him and it involved this Peter and John. Now, quickly, Peter deflects credit that the gathering crowd wants to give him and says that it was neither power from God given to them, nor was it their personal condition of a special godliness. And now Peter gives a speech that is essentially a gospel presentation. First he says that the power to do such miracles is invested in but one person, Yehoveh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is the God of the Jews. <clears throat> However, this same God has glorified Yeshua of Nazareth, meaning God has given Christ authority and power that belongs exclusively to the Father. Now see, this concept of power, belonging to God the Father, but being given to Yeshua his Son, can be kind of difficult to grasp. So there are theologians, beginning with some of the earlier church fathers, who determined that if the Father gave his Son authority and power, that means Jesus now carries what his Father used to have, but willingly gave up. And what that kind of thinking results in is that we have Yeshua wrongly cast into a Greek cultural mode mold because in the Greek god pantheon, a father god could give his power to a son, but whatever power he gave to that son, only the son now possessed it and the father god no longer had that particular power. So the son god could even use that power against his father God. And while some of you may be thinking, well, gee, I've never heard that from a pastor as regards the biblical father and son, in fact, this implication is expressed in the doctrines and the attitudes of many mainstream denominations. This is why among some Christians... Jesus is seen as supremely relevant, but the Father is seen as less relevant, or even irrelevant for so-called New Testament believers. But because Yeshua was a Jew, who was born and lived in a Jewish Middle Eastern culture, the relationship between a typical father and his son was well understood by Peter's audience. Indeed, the family patriarch bore all the power in the family until he became completely incapacitated or he died. If at a certain age of maturity the firstborn son seems worthy enough to handle some of the father's affairs, then the father, at his sole discretion, will give that son authority and power to act as the father's proxy in whatever capacity the father decides. But this in no way means that the Father has surrendered the familial authority and power in the sense that He's transferred it to His Son so that now only His Son possesses it and the Father no longer has a say. When we see the Heavenly Father and His Son portrayed to us in the Bible, we must think in these terms because that is precisely what's intended. The Father holds and retains all power. But he has given power and authority to his son Yeshua to act as the father's shaliach, his agent. And interestingly, Peter characterizes Yeshua not as an equal, but as the servant of his father. Again, this is just standard Jewish Middle Eastern thinking about a father and son relationship. But just as Peter had done when he bashed the crowd of Jews on Mount Zion who were witnessing the Pentecost event of the coming of the Holy Spirit Spirit and the speaking in tongues, he now lays that same accusation upon the Jews who have come running to see this formerly lame man leaping around like a deer. And he says that the one whom God glorified, Jesus they now deny and disown. And when Pontius Pilate gave the Jewish crowd a choice of pardoning a criminal murderer or letting the innocent Christ go, the crowd sided with the murderer. The result was the author of life, Yeshua, was given the death sentence and he was killed. Now, while we're here, I want to digress for just a moment to discuss Pontius Pilate. He was the fifth in a series of governors over the Roman province of Judea. And it is as certain as anything can be, when we're looking back 2,000 years in the historical record, that he came into power on what our modern calendars would say is 26 A.D. He was known as a rigid, a reckless, a ruthless ruler that tended to stir up civil disobedience rather than to tamp it down using any kind of diplomacy. Now, this was actually against formal Roman policy that attempted to rule its empire in an enlightened way, not not unlike the way Cyrus had operated the Persian Empire. Now Pilate was removed from power by Caesar in 36 AD for a particularly unconscionable act against some Samaritans who wanted a journey to Mount Gerizim to meet with a prophet. He killed many of this peaceful assembly for some ambiguous reason. Now my purpose for telling you this is that because Pilate was the one who condemned Jesus to the cross, then Christ's death had to occur no earlier than 26 AD, no later than 36 AD. So we have a very well-defined 10-year period for when Christ would have ministered and died. So when we understand that this miracle of healing the cripple at the beautiful gate occurred not long after Shavuot in the same year that Christ died and ascended into heaven, then we get a very good point of reference for dating this event. Well, in verse 16, Peter announces perhaps the most important non-negotiable doctrine of salvation. It is trust that comes through Yeshua which has given him this perfect healing in the presence of you all. Now we discussed in our last lesson the Greek word holoclerion. And while it is here being translated as perfect healing, essentially it's a term meant to denote wholeness. So Peter is saying that it is Yeshua through who comes our restoration to wholeness just as it has now for this disabled man. Notice that once the lame man is made whole, only now can he enter the gate into the temple grounds. And the requirement to receive this restoration to wholeness is trust in Yeshua as the Messiah. Of course, it is this trust in Yeshua that evangelical Christianity is termed grace. And I can't think of a more appropriate English word than grace to describe what Christ has done for us. This man crippled from birth as in a sense are all human beings who was made whole what did he do to merit it? Nothing. He did nothing to merit his restoration. It was simply given to him as a free gift from God. What an exquisite picture of salvation we're offered here in this healing. Well next Peter invokes essentially the same words that Yeshua did on the cross, only slightly modified. In verse 17, Peter says, Now brothers, I know that you did not understand the significance of what you were doing and neither did your leaders. See, this compares favorably with what we find in Luke chapter 23. In Luke 23, 34 we read, Yeshua said, Father, forgive them, they don't understand what they're doing. We should take notice that the only gospel that records those particular words of Christ Father forgive them is the gospel of Luke the same Luke who wrote Acts so it's no coincidence that Luke chooses to record that Peter borrowed those familiar words from his master to mitigate the fear and the guilt probably anger among some of them that the crowd was feeling And because the gospel is consistent, it never changes. Peter's words about what the crowd should do about their guilt for killing God's son, well those are essentially the same as he spoke to the crowds on Pentecost. Repent! That's what you do. Verse 19 has Peter saying, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be erased. Now, There's more to this verse that we'll get into in a little while. But first, I'd like to point out that if you have a King James Version Bible, that same verse reads like this, Acts 3.19. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. The complete Jewish Bible says, Turn to God. The King James Version says be converted. So we're going to pause now and take a detour to examine yet another common Christian doctrine that needs to be retired. And it's the doctrine that says becoming a Christian means to convert. This little word convert has enormous implications has much to do with this wall of separation that has grown between Jews and Christians. And I'm going to tell you the bottom line up front before I then explain it more thoroughly. Peter's call is not to convert. It is to turn. Now, the dictionary says that to convert means to change in form, to metamorphose. To become something other than you are. But to turn means to rotate or swivel or pivot. I hope you hear the rather large difference in meaning and outcome of the two terms convert versus turn. One means to become something else entirely the other one means to change your direction. So what is it that a person is supposed to do when we repent and we come to Jesus become something else entirely or do we change direction? The Greek word that's being translated here is epistrephol. Epistrepho. and remembering that what is being expressed is Hebrew thought coming from Peter's Jewish mind then we need to grasp that the Greek we have it in is effectively a translation. And by the way, I'm not claiming that Acts was originally written in Hebrew. I'm saying that while the original written text is Greek, so far as we know, the thought and the culture and the language of the Bible character Peter is Hebrew. So, epistrefo appears to be attempting to translate the Hebrew word shav, shav, which means to turn back. The issue that's arisen from this intellectually incorrect King James Version Bible choice to use the word convert stems from an agenda. That the Catholic Church held that indeed one had a metamorphosis like a caterpillar to a butterfly to become a Christian, or even more so, I'd say, from a cat to a dog. And doubly so for Jews. For a Jew to convert to Christianity first and foremost meant to stop being a Jew, start being a Gentile. This was no misunderstanding nor did they mean something different than what we mentally picture when we envision conversion. It is precisely what the church leadership intended since the thinking was that Christianity is a Gentiles-only religion and this doctrine of conversion is deeply embedded, although often invisibly just below the surface, in most of mainstream Christianity, even if most Christians don't recognize it for what it is. See, words have meaning. Words create mental pictures. Pictures that lead to assumptions and conclusions that we often make without consciously realizing it. And while I don't know what we'd do without the written word of God, on the other hand, unless one is versed in the original languages, what all of us have to read from are necessarily translations. But that's only the beginning of the issue of extracting meaning from words. The meaning of words can change over time, and they do. Some English words as used in the King James Version Bible translation don't necessarily mean what we take that same word in English to mean in the 21st century. Goodness, during my lifetime, there are many English words that I used in my childhood that have completely different meanings today. And there are English words that exist today that didn't even exist when I was a youth. So for those of you who have followed Seed of Abraham Tor class for the, over the years, you know that one of the basic tenets is that we must try to understand what those words written in the Bible meant to the authors, meant to the people those authors were directing their inspired words towards. In their time, in their ancient Middle Eastern cultural setting, this historical reconstruction is crucial to extract proper meaning from the words we read in Scripture. What What must also be admitted is that some of those ancient Hebrew concepts have been tragically misunderstood and at times misrepresented and so mistranslated into certain English words that give us the wrong impression of their intent but they do fulfill certain theological agendas. There are few biblical words though that have more impact on our Christian theology doctrines, philosophy than others and one of those key words is the term convert or conversion. And while we have found this English word used in the King James Version and a handful of other Bibles. In our study today of, of, of the book of Acts chapter 3 verse 19, this is also true as the word conversion applies to the Apostle Paul. And I propose to you today that this word conversion needs to be removed from our believers' vocabulary and removed from our Bibles as concerns redemption, repentance and salvation because it isn't actually there and it doesn't belong to be inserted in there. Conversion gives us an entirely wrong impression about what it was that Peter and Luke had in mind in Acts And what Paul did in reaction to his experience with Christ, and what he expected of disciples, that they all made on behalf of the Messiah. Now the traditional scholarship over the past several centuries has concluded that first generation, the first generation Christian community after Yeshua and the apostles had already it had already become a distinct religion separated from Judaism. Basically the idea is that Peter was in the process of rejecting Judaism in favor of Christianity. And Paul already had. And along with it, he had decided to condemn as worthless servitude any attempt for new believers to follow the law of Moses that had been the very heartbeat of the biblical religion. The term that was coined by later Christian leaders to describe what this well-studied Jewish Rabbi Shaul did, Paul, and his extreme change from being a follower of Judaism into an anti-law Christian was conversion. Paul was a convert we are told. But what does being converted mean? A.D. Nock says that conversion means that deliberate and great changes involved whereby the old was wrong the new is right and indeed that is the crux of Christian doctrine to prove that Peter then Paul decided that their Hebrew Judaism that obeyed the Torah was wrong and now this new religion called Christianity that abolished the Torah was right well in the mid 1970s A Bible academic named Christer Stendhal, who was actually at the head of religion at Harvard, urged his fellow scholars to drop the term conversion and instead use the word call. His contention was that this English word more accurately portrays to the modern mind what was true. And it is, he says, this. Peter and Paul did not see themselves as no longer part of Judaism or as Jews who abandoned the law and the Torah. That's not how they saw themselves. The word call, you see, softens the contrast between the Judaism that these two Messianic leaders, Paul and Peter, had been practicing, and this new and spreading movement that made Yeshua of Nazareth the focus. In other words, for Peter, Paul, and all the disciples, what they came to practice after their personal experiences with Christ was really a type of Judaism, not a new anti-Judaism religion. And of course there was pushback against Mr. Stendhal from the institutional Christian community that wanted there to be not merely a sharp contrast, but rather a complete break between Torah-based Judaism and this new Christianity. And this thought process is based on the enti- uh, entirely based on the idea that Paul converted from Judaism to Christianity. It means that he discovered that the traditional Torah-based religion of the Hebrews was wrong and now he would follow the new Christianity that in his day had no holy book whatsoever. After all, it's a historical fact that there was no New Testament until around 200 AD, some 150 years, a century and a half. After Paul's time. So if Peter and Paul, and of course all the other disciples, converted, why do they continue going to the temple in Jerusalem? Making sacrifices there. If they converted, why does Paul continue to engage in the vow rituals of first allowing one's hair to grow and then cutting it and offering it at the temple upon conclusion of the vow terms? Why do they all continue to engage in the biblical feasts? ordained in Leviticus but getting beyond Peter and Paul how do we deal with the two groups that are routinely said to form Paul's converts Jews who practiced Judaism and pagan Gentiles who practiced idolatry now on the surface it would certainly seem to be correct to say that Gentiles indeed made metamorphosis from a caterpillar to a butterfly. From the worship of their traditional gods and idols to the worship of the God of Israel. Here's the reason why the term convert still is inappropriate. It's misleading, even for this situation. In Peter's worldview, which was representative of the general Jewish worldview, the world consisted of two religious communities. Israel's and everybody else's. Everybody else was the nation's, Goyim, in the Hebrew scriptures. However, there were some Gentiles who had become something called God-fearers. Gentiles who adopted the God of Israel as their God. So had the Jews reached a point in their cultural evolution of making a distinction between Gentiles and pagan Gentiles. No. That kind of thought is nowhere present during the era of the apostles. A culture or ethnicity and their God, that was all one and the same. So if you're an Israelite, you automatically worship the God of Israel. If you're a Gentile, you automatically worship some other God from wherever you lived in the story. Thus in the book of Galatians chapter 5, Paul speaks against against other so-called Christian missionaries who were telling the local Gentiles of Galatia that if they receive a Jewish circumcision then they'll be responsible to keep the whole law meaning the Torah and the, the entire body of tradition that most national Jews followed. In other words, The act of having a circumcision and agreeing to live a completely Jewish lifestyle meant that such a Gentile had converted. He had converted, he had metamorphosed from being a Gentile to becoming a Jew. And guess what? Surprise! Paul was against this. He was against conversion. He didn't want Gentiles to give up being Gentiles to become national Jews. His Gentiles were to stay Gentiles. Yes, they must stop worshipping their other gods, bow down only to the God of Israel, but they weren't to convert. Christianity calls what these Christian missionaries were doing that Paul was fighting against as Judaizing. So in Paul's mind, the only true converts were those Gentiles who intentionally became national Jews as the Judaizing missionaries were insisting upon. You see, the problem in using the word convert or conversion is it confuses and misrepresents the situation that's being described in the Bible. The term convert entangles us in this idea that in Peter's day, Christianity was created by Christ as the first Christian as something for people to convert to. So if Gentiles were not to convert and become Jews and there was no need for Jews to convert to something else to follow Yeshua, then what was Paul's thought about what happened to him on the road to Damascus? And what precisely was he asking these Gentiles he was preaching to to do? What mental picture did he have that he was urging them to accept and adopt? Well, When you look at Paul's writings in Greek, he uses certain derivations of the Greek word strepho. We used one earlier, epistrepho. And they all have something to do with pointing to or turning to. For example, in 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians one nine, we hear Paul say, You turn to, you epistrepho, you turn to God from idols to worship the true and living God. Now interestingly, when the Greek got translated into Latin, so now we're Hebrew to Greek, now we're going to go to Latin, the, Hebrew, the Latin word chosen was converso. And then when the Latin, Hebrew to Greek to Latin to English, The word chosen was convert. So the idea that Peter and Paul insisted upon is that one does not convert, one turns. If a Gentile converted, that means he becomes a Jew. He follows Jewish tradition, and he's obligated to follow Jewish ancestral customs, of course. If a Jew converted, he became a Gentile. And he gave up his Jewish heritage. But as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1, a new believer is to unite with God the Father and with the Lord Yeshua, Jew or Gentile. So Paul, in trying to explain exactly what it is that he's asking Gentiles to do says that upon one's faith in Messiah Yeshua, the Holy Spirit enters that believer and a kind of uh, spiritual family connection is made with the Jewish people. And to illustrate this, Paul likes to use the Roman concept of adoption. After all, he's talking to Gentiles. The adopted person, you see, does not have real physical blood or any genetic connection to his or her adoptive family. Nevertheless, in a real legal way and by means of a state of mind, this person becomes part of that family by mutual agreement. The adopted person makes a commitment to the family And the family imputes family status upon that adopted person. Further, as Paul says in Romans 8 and in Galatians 4, that upon this status change, this adopted person, a Gentile, that's who he's talking to, can now, now cry out, Abba, Father. This Abba, Father is not the Hebrew patriarch Abraham. It's not Jacob. So no, Family collection, a connection with him is intended rather this Abba father is referring to the Heavenly Father the God of Israel and of Abraham so just as a Roman adopted person would not claim blood relationship with his new family he does claim full legal family status based on law and based on mutual agreement this is how we need to view what Peter meant. This is how we need to view what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus and what Paul then expected of those Gentiles that he'd go on to evangelize. He expected them to turn from their God to the true God. And when we realize this, then we can drop this concept that the disciples converted from something wrong to something right that they all left their Jewishness to become something else or that a Gentile is to leave his or her Gentileness I'm not sure that's a word to become something else a Jew whatever change there is or is being asked for it's a spiritual turning it's a mental condition This also helps us to understand why the church's insistence that if a Jew wants to worship Christ, they must convert is met with such resistance by the Jewish community, as it should be. And this is because a right-thinking Jew understands that by converting, the church most certainly means that the Jew must leave his or her Judaism and central uh, ancestral Jewish heritage and Jewish cultural customs in order to become a Christian. Paul sums up his position rather well regarding Jews and Gentiles and whether the one should convert to become the other one in Romans two twenty-five through Romans three five. Let's read that together. Romans two. 25 through 36 uh, if you have a complete Jewish Bible we'll start on page 1404 go there with me please 1404 if you have a complete Jewish Bible starting at Romans 2 25 through three35 actually three six I apologize three six okay for circumcision is indeed of value if you do what the Torah says. But if you are a transgressor of Torah, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the Torah, won't his uncircumcision be countered to circumcision? Indeed, the man who is physically uncircumcised but obeys the Torah, well, he'll stand as a judgment on you who've had a milah circumcision uh, ceremony and have Torah written out, but you violate it. For the real Jew is not merely Jewish outwardly. True circumcision is not only external and physical. On the contrary, the real Jew is one inwardly. And true circumcision is of the heart. Spiritual, not literal. So that his praise comes not from other people but from God. Moving on to chapter 3. Then what advantage has a Jew? What's the value of being circumcised? Much in every way. In the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. Now some of them were unfaithful, so what? Does their unfaithfulness cancel God's faithfulness? Heaven forbid! God would be true even if everyone were a liar, as the Tanakh says, so that you, God, may be proved right in your words and win the verdict when you're put on trial. Now if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness. What should we say? that God is unrighteous to inflict His anger on us? And I'm speaking here the way the, uh, here the way people commonly do. Heaven forbid. How else could God, uh, could God judge the world? So I ask you to retire the term convert or conversion from your vocabulary. Instead, begin to employ the term that's here. (laughs) Turn. Turn. Use those in your words. Use it in your thinking. Because that's what's closer to what Peter meant. Closer to what Paul did as he was prepared to take the good news to the world of the Gentiles. Well, as you can see, because Acts chapter 3 is so loaded with theologically important issues that arise from the advent of Yeshua, the coming of the Holy Spirit, we're still not done with Acts chapter 3. So, we'll continue in it next week.